0: Um, It is so good to be with you. I'm so glad that you're here on a Sunday night. Uh, We are in Philippians chapter 1. This is week number 2 in our study of the book of Philippians, uh, simply titled Christ Our Joy. And we're going to look at the the first half or so, or the first third I should say, of chapter 1 tonight. Uh, Last week we spent a lot of time uh, introducing the book of Philippians in terms of the background to the book. We examined Acts chapter 16 and just looked at how the Philippian church was started and what sort of might have been on Paul's mind. As he is here talking uh, now in this letter to those same Philippian believers. Uh, and so tonight we're just going to examine these first 11 verses. And hopefully uh, find out a lot more about Christ who is our joy. And as we mentioned last week, Philippians, uh, and, and probably probably perhaps you can give testimony to this. that uh, Philippians is one of the most beloved books of the New Testament. It, it contains a lot of uh, very well-known verses. Uh, especially from chapters three and four, uh, there's a lot of uh, verses that might be perhaps your life verse, perhaps. Um, and I would say, and I, I would say that this letter, Philippians, is one of the more transparent letters, and by that I mean it's not one that we have to uh, dig into. Like Romans. Uh, there's certainly we are digging into this book and we will over the course of the next several weeks. But it's, it's dissimilar from those other books uh, as we mentioned last time because it's not Paul's heart of discipline or doctrine that's on display uh, like it is in Colossians or Ephesians or Romans especially or Galatians. And not his heart of discipline or doctrine like, uh, like Corinthians or anything like that. It's, it's Paul's uh, friendly sort of tender loving care. It's Paul's pastoral heart He has a heart for this church. And I think that's what's uh, very evident throughout all of these pages, is that it's Paul the pastor uh, coming alongside believers that he genuinely loves, that he genuinely has a heart for. Um, The theme of Philippians is rightly considered to be that of joy or rejoicing. In fact, those words, joy or rejoicing, actually appear uh, over 18 times uh, in all of these four little chapters. Uh, It's a predominant theme that's on Paul's mind. And I think that's what makes this book so incredibly astounding, is the fact that Paul is writing uh, a book about joy, a letter about joy, as he is sitting in chains. Uh, That's really the prevailing thing that we need to keep in the back of our minds. Uh, But I would say more specifically this theme is Christ our joy. And that might seem really obvious (laughs) or or, or self-evident to you that Christ is our joy. But I think it's the most important, the, the most crucial point we can make. Is that Paul's joy wasn't found in any other source, any other thing around him, any other thing that he believed it was only found in Christ. And in fact, even more than the theme of joy or rejoicing, Christ appears in this letter over 40 times. Over 40 times he mentions the, word, the names, the titles, Christ, and Jesus. Most often it's termed Christ Jesus. Uh, sometimes, actually only one time in the letter does he mention Jesus just by itself. Most often it's Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, or just Christ by itself. Uh, and in fact, out of those 40 times, 18 times is, um, is Christ Jesus mentioned here in this first chapter. So I think if you want to get a clear understanding of what Paul is at wanting to convey to this church, it's joy, but joy specifically through Christ alone. It's not through some uh, harebrained theory about anything that they can try and go and find inner peace or or anything like that. It's not some sort of mystical thing, it's not some sort of just just buckle down and believe, it's Buckle down and believe this one whose name is Jesus. This one who is, quote, the Christ. As Peter says in Acts chapter 2, Who the one who is both Messiah and Lord. It is This is the, the person that he is everywhere making so prominent and evident through this letter. So Christ is preeminent through all of this letter. And in fact, um, in, in chapter 4 verse 12, he, he talks about how... This Christ is preeminent in, in seasons of want and in seasons of plenty, and such is where we get this theme of Christ our joy. Uh, so just really quickly, to give you sort of uh, a sneak peek at where we're going, um, this, we're going to build out this theme of Christ our joy over the course of these four chapters. Uh, in chapter one, uh, I, what we're going to kind of focus on is Christ as our life of joy, in chapter 2, we're going to talk about Christ as our example of joy. In chapter 3, we're going to talk about Christ as our object of, of joy. In chapter 4, we're going to talk about Christ as our supply of joy. Because I really think that that's what Paul is going into as he's going into each of these different chapters. Uh, but in generally, uh, overall... Uh, What Paul is demonstrating is just how you can find joy in regardless of the season of life that you're in, in Christ alone. And again, he's commending this from jail. As he mentions throughout this chapter, uh, especially like verses 13 and 14 and 16, he's talking about doing so in bonds, he says, uh, in chains. Again, uh, as we noted last time in chapter 1, look at verses 3 and 4. As he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy. Paul has been sort of thinking about the Philippian church, and every time he does, he has these fond memories uh, of those days of unexpected joy as the Philippian church was being founded. Unexpected and yet surprising joy, only because Paul was thrown into prison. Uh, He was thrown into prison very early on in his ministry with the Philippians. But each time here he is filled, as he says, with thanksgiving, always in every prayer of mine. What is he doing? He's thanking God and he's, he's bringing their requests before God with utter joy. Precisely because, as he says in verse 5, their fellowship in the gospel has not ceased from that first day until now. So he's remembering them, he's praising God, he's so grateful for this church body, and he's remembering them and he's bringing them to God before God in, in prayer. And he, he dwells upon this note of fellowship, I would say from that, that point, verse 5 down through verse 11. And I think we ought to do the same as well. So in this little moment as we are examining in chapter 1 Christ as our life of joy, I think we are right here to examine our life as joyful believers in joyful fellowship with one another. I think that's what he's doing here in chapter 1 verses 1 through 11. You know, there are a lot of theories And definitions and opinions on what it means to be, quote, the church. Uh, what does it what does it look like? How does that? Uh, how do we how do we be the church in our times? And, and what, do, what does a church do? And and what is the primary focus of a body of believers as they are organized into a church and so on and so forth? And uh, because of those varying views and opinions and beliefs, that's why you have many different denominational splinters and, and segregations and offshoots and all those sorts of things. But what I would actually say is that what makes a church a church is none other than what Paul. Sort of embodies what he actually Examples for us Here in these verses In these words to this church Because I think he demonstrates Precisely what he's talking about He demonstrates through word What it means to have fellowship in the gospel To be The church And again he doesn't do this like he does In the letters to the pastorals Like in 1 Timothy or Titus Where he talks about The doctrine of the church he, he does this more through just as a friend and brother coming alongside brothers and sisters in Christ. So the question I want to sort of answer tonight is how is a group of believers galvanized, sort of formed, shaped, molded, fashioned into the church? Well, I think what happens is it's is the, is the byproduct of the gospel... Lodging in our soul, and it's sort of stoked by these, what I want to hope examine tonight, three characteristics for us. Three characteristics of, I would say, a church that has been galvanized by the gospel. So, uh, quickly, let's look at these. Uh, the first one, I think, is example for us in verses three and four, especially. Uh, I would call it passionate prayer. The first one is passionate prayer. Look at verses three and four again. Where Paul says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy. Again, maybe you would think that this is too simple. Of course, church starts with prayer. But I would say there's nothing more elemental, nothing more fundamental for a group of believers who call themselves a church than to be a church that prays. And then I think there's a story of, of Charles Spurgeon who always had a group of people praying underneath his sanctuary in sort of, quote, the basement of the church. And it's, and he, I remember, I don't, this is not an exact quote, so don't quote me on this, but Spurgeon says something to the effect that the only reason why everything up here is even possible and allowed to go on is because there's people underneath the floors praying. He he knew what his church, what his whole entire ministry was founded upon. It wasn't his eloquence, and Spurgeon was very eloquent. It wasn't his charisma, and he was a very charismatic uh, speaker. It was because people were praying. They were on their knees bringing all of these requests, as Paul here mentions, to God with joy. So, both... Individually, in your private prayer times, and yes, corporately, we pray as a group of believers. We bring our prayers, we bring our concerns before a God who cares for us. And you see, this is what Paul is, is evidencing. Again, as we noted, it's been roughly 10 to 15 years since those first events in Acts chapter 16. And when Paul is here now writing this letter. In all of those years, he says, I always thank God. Every time you come to my mind, I thank God that I can remember you and pray for you. Since the beginning, he has not ceased interceding on their behalf. I pray for your joy. I bring your needs to the God who can actually supply them. Even though Paul was in this moment Physically hindered from being present with these believers. He was so confident that praying would, uh, would bring Christ present to minister to them in far better ways than he could. And such is what would keep them rooted and grounded as a body of believers. It was the prayers of the church that would keep them rooted and grounded. Rooted and grounded on Christ's love. One commentator, A.W. Pink, says that the measure of our love for others can largely be determined by the frequency and earnestness of our prayers for them. And I think that's very, very true, which leads me to ask a question to myself, and you can hear it out loud, and perhaps you can ask it to yourself. How often do you regularly pray for your church family? How often are you going through them and praying for uh, the, the requests that, are either, that come through on notifications or whatever? Or just when people come to mind, do you stop and pray for them? Because I think uh, so often we get so caught up in the busyness of what we're doing that we forget about other people's lives and cares and concerns and worries and fears and burdens. And it's difficult It's difficult, I would say, to genuinely pray for those with whom you have a little disagreement with. (laughs) I would say church unity is built up by nothing but prayer. That's, I think, why Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that we ought to pray for our enemies. (laughs) Because he knew how difficult that was. Because you would have to actually bring them before God if you are genuinely praying for them. A healthy church is a praying church. And it's a prayer that is genuine and heartfelt. Notice what Paul prays for in verse 8. As he says, For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. In this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. He's praying for their spiritual health, their spiritual well-being. And he's focused, he's intense, he's, he's targeting that specifically. I'm praying for you, Philippian church, that you might be built up in this abounding love of God. And therefore, you too might abound in this love of God for others. Abound, as he says, in all knowledge and in all judgment. We could summarize that by basically saying he prays for their flourishing. I want you to flourish, church. I want you to be thriving and successful and, and positive in all of your ministry outreaches. That's essentially what he's praying for. That all of their love and their growth, their, their faith would just overflow. As he says, that it would abound. Even uh, this to me, again, this is what seems so remarkable to me that even as Paul is sitting in a dank and dark and damp Roman jail cell, as he's sitting in chains, he's thinking about someone else's well-being. He's not thinking about himself. He's not uh, singing, woe is me and how dare everyone not uh, sort of minister to me. How dare you not think about me and my predicament. He's thinking about the Philippians. In their spiritual welfare, their spiritual warfare as well. Putting their needs above his own, which is a thing that will come to play in chapter 2. But again, this is the effect of the gospel on us. Because again, notice as he says there in verse 8, he longs for them in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Which is just a phrase that we don't often use. The bowels of Christ Jesus Essentially, this is a love that springs from Jesus' insidest insides. It's, if you can forgive me, it's an intestinal love. It's a deep, abiding, convictional love and affection that Jesus has for his people. And it's. And here Paul is embodying and sort of exampling this sort of same passion for these believers through prayer. Just as Christ, as he says here, loves you from his bowels, so too I draw on that love for you, church. And I bring you before this Christ, that you may abound in the love that he has for you. I hope and pray that you are a praying church. I know that uh, many people have said that to that effect. The letters that we read this morning, I think, give example to that. Of a church that surrounds people in prayer At a moment's notice When heartache and hardship come about and I would say the more we are gripped The more we are gripped by this, this intestinal love The more we will be given to love others In the same manner And it happens I would say With this passionate prayer that we have For those who are in fellowship with us So first is passionate prayer Second I think the sort of Ingredient or characteristic of a body of believers is patient purity. Notice with me verse 6. What Paul confesses here. He's, he says he's confident. Being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all because I have you in my heart. Inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of my grace. Here Paul uh, confesses that he's absolutely sure, he's persuaded beyond doubt that because Christ has begun a good work in these group of believers, begun a good work in them on their souls, he's going to perform it. He's going to carry it out until he returns they, they shared in Paul's defense and confirmation of the gospel. They shared with Paul in this ministry of standing for the truth. And as Paul says, in so doing, you shared in the same grace that I have ministered. And here he says, with all assurance that what Christ intends to make out of them, he is going to do. <laughs> That's exactly how they're going to end up. I am confident that because of Christ's work now, he's going to always perform that work. I don't doubt his work on you. Which also leads us to say this too, that they weren't how they should be. They were works in process. They were still being worked on by Christ in the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. They were still being fashioned to what they will be like on that final day. But they weren't yet as they are. Or as they will be, I should say. Which, to me is one of the most fundamental ingredients for, I would say, genuine Christian fellowship. As a body of believers, as a church, it's inspired, it's, it's galvanized by a mutual understanding that we are all works in process. We are all on various stages of that process of being chiseled into the image of Christ uh, alone. As Paul says, as we are being conformed into the image of God's Son. And that happens in a lot of different ways. You can probably look back on uh, many past years in your life and you can think about all the ways that God has chiseled and molded you. Has knocked uh, really rough edges off of your life and your character and your heart. And that's different for a lot of people. Just the way that that happens But as Paul here evidences, rest assured, that's going to happen. Until the end of days, he's going to perform this work. He's going to carry it out. But what I love, and what Paul sort of evidences here, because of the gospel... I can already greet you as if God has already done that work. Notice he says, it is meet, it is right, it is just, it is necessary for me to think this of you all because I have you in my heart. I can greet you as though that work is already done because I'm so confident that Christ is already going to do it. He's already going to perform it, He's going to carry it out. Such is why he says in verse 1 he calls them saints. (laughs) He calls even the Corinthians saints, if you can believe that. Which is another example, I think, of what Paul is evidencing here. He's greeting them as though they already are what Christ is making them to be. This is, well, I think, an amazing effect of the gospel. These Philippians had not made them sa- made themselves saints, but. Only by grace through faith, they have been sainted in Christ. In Christ alone, they have been made into the sons and daughters of the King. As he's else we're going to talk about, they have been become citizens of the heavenly kingdom. And yes, now they can be greeted as such. It's right for me to greet you in this way. H. A. Ironside, in his commentary on this first chapter, I love how he says this. God our Father, he writes, sees in every believer that which will be fully brought out at the judgment seat of Christ. And he is working now toward that end. We too often see the present imperfection and forget the future glory. And I think that's too, that's so true. We are, we are with people shoulder to shoulder. People who sometimes might rub us the wrong way. <laughs> and we see them perhaps for their immediate present faults. Without thinking about what? What Christ is making them into. What Christ's spirit is molding and fashioning and shaping them to be. That there's coming a day when they too will be made into fully holy white robed sons and daughters of the Lamb. And that right now we can greet them as if that's who they are. Because in Christ that is so. To me this would automatically change I think our fellowship. If we greeted people as though uh, we, we know who they are in Christ. <laughs> they are sons and daughters of the king. <laughs> Made and conformed and being conformed into this image of Jesus Christ alone. This to me, I think, is what keeps the church uh, unbelievably healthy. It's not when we pretend to be perfect. It's when we both all understand that we are patient in and with this process of conforming. As Paul talks about in Romans, this process of having our minds renewed into this image of Jesus Christ. I've struggled with that notion of where this... Where it came about that those who attend church that sit in pews are somehow a little bit more perfect than the people that don't. And it's good and it's right that you're here sitting in pews, but let's not pretend that we're perfect saints. And I think that's what allows us to be genuine with those who are around us. Because we know that we aren't perfect. But we know the one who has made us into holy and blameless saints. And it's this one Jesus Christ whom Paul is here praying to. This one who to whom Paul is bringing these believers before. And he prays. Notice verse 10. In this process we could say of patient purity. Notice he says... That they would develop sort of a, a, a judgment, a prudence to approve all things that are excellent. Verse 10. That ye may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. So he says this purity is so that they might live and serve as the church with God and with one another. I want to draw your attention though to that word sincere that he uses in verse 10. It means essentially pure, or unsullied, or we could perhaps even more literally, this word means without flaw, when examined by the light of the sun. Which is a really interesting way to describe this word. And It's an image that is amazingly striking, and it's actually made even more amazingly striking if we do a little bit of etymology, if we learn where this word comes from. I'm sure there are a lot of other commentators that mention this, but essentially this word sincere comes from the Latin word meaning sincera, which means without wax, which is a weird phrase perhaps. But uh, you see in these days, there were certain ancient porcelain dealers who were prone or who were certain porcelain vessels that were prone to cracking when you would put them in the kiln, when you would fire them. And so if you were a really shady porcelain dealer and you had a porcelain vessel uh, that was cracked, what you would do is you would apply this wax to all the cracks. And so when you were selling this faulty product, it actually looked really good to the naked eye. You couldn't tell that it was cracked. It was only when you held it up to the light of the sun that all those cracks suddenly appeared. Because it wasn't the same material as what the porcelain was really made out of. This is the only way that you would be able to judge this porcelain vessel is by holding it up to the light. And so, very honest porcelain dealers would label themselves uh, and label their, their vessels as Sin Sarah, without wax. So that you would know that they are dealing with genuine, uh, actual, true, pure porcelain. There was no forgery <laughs> There was no fakery. They weren't trying to uh, sort of put stuff in the cracks to make it appear beautiful. They, their vessels were judged as genuine. Which to me is an amazing image that Paul here uses for this church. Hey, be sincere in who you are and know that who you are has been changed because of Christ. You don't have to put wax in the cracks of all of your sin and vanity and strife. God has remade you. You don't have to to whitewash those tombs as Jesus says in Matthew Matthew 23. as, As though you're whited sepulchers which inside hide nothing but dead men's bones. Instead, you've been remade, you've been renewed, and you are still being renewed by this same Jesus Christ and his spirit. This, I would say, is the hallmark of those who find their fellowship in the gospel. It's a patience with one another as we seek to be sincere and genuine in our lives of purity alongside one another. Knowing that we have a truer and better purpose than just calling out each other's flaws. Which brings me to the last sort of key ingredient of a church that is galvanized by the gospel. Uh, it is passionate prayer. And patient purity. And I would say lastly it's purposeful partnership. Look at verse 5. Purposeful partnership as he says for your fellowship, Paul says, in the gospel From the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You are all partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And thus I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. That you may approve things that are excellent. That you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Jesus Christ. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness. Which are by Jesus Christ. Unto the glory and praise of God. He says here Paul. That their ministry of defense. Their ministry of confirmation. And their ministry of participation in the gospel of grace. Is indicative of their fellowship. Indicative of their association with one another, their partnership with one another, in that they have a common cause. As he says here, their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now is fueled by this common cause they have in Christ. Their objective was the same. Their their goal was the same, as he highlights in verse 12 later on. This furtherance of the gospel. They shared a belief, a bond of being filled with all these fruits of righteousness and striving, as he says there in verse 11, for the glory and praise of God alone. This to me, I think is what keeps this church together, knit together, is the fact that they had this unity of heart and spirit in mind. and mind. Now I say the same is true for us today. That we will not stand together unless we are partnered together for the same cause of knowing Christ and making him known. As Paul is here evidencing, they are partnered, as he says in verse 7, they are partakers of my grace. They are sharers, they are participants in this ministry of grace. Knowing that all we do and achieve, all that we are, is because of this one Christ alone, the Lord. And it's because of him. And it's through him, as he says there, which are by Jesus Christ. If we are each chasing our own goals and ends and accomplishments, we will be divided. We will be disrupted by our own personal demons, perhaps our own personal egos, by our own personal wills. But as here, Paul is evidencing, they have been partnered together, associated under the common cause and banner of Christ alone for the single idea and the single purpose of the glory and praise of God. That's when we shine a very bright spotlight on what this gospel can accomplish. It can accomplish great things through very ungreat people. <laughs> Matt Chandler, the the pastor out in Texas, he says, when all of us, different kinds of people, walk together in unity for the glory of Christ, the gospel looks really big. Now say here, the gospel looks really big in these lives of these Philippian believers because they're praying for one another. With passion. And they are sharing with, with uh, one another's purposes. And they are being patient w- with one another's process of being made pure. And being made holy into the image of Christ alone. You see, I would say that the world does not know the half of what Christ is capable of. And it's only by us being galvanized into the church of Christ... As those who have been united in the fellowship of the gospel, that's when we get to give them a taste of of glory divine. What's that song? Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. One of the best foretastes of that is the church itself, functioning as the church. People who otherwise might be separated are united under a common cause, knowing that they have a God and a Christ whom they can run to. For me, this is what I think what the church looks like. It's embodied in evidence by this apostle who's sitting in chains. And that he's praying and thinking and being patient with those who are purposed with him for the sake of God and for the sake in advance of the gospel. May we do likewise. Let us pray.